Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. I was reminded this morning... Uh, of just how flipping amazing it is to be back here doing this together. You know, it's been nearly six months since, well, certainly we, it was early May when we um, started meeting here. And the thing that struck me then, and I hope the thing that will never stop striking me henceforth, is there are so many parts of the Christian life and our faith that we can do while we're locked up in our houses, separated. But worship... Worship being led by people who are so gifted to lead worship is something that was just really quite missing, even for those of us who would say we know how to worship God by ourselves. Um, and the experience of it, I don't know if you were here when kind of Tavia took certainly me from a place of, here's the first song and I'm just singing it because I'm here to sing it. And she just said a few things about how we step into this place and and how it works, and then within a song or two, I just, I'm hearing your voices, and the, the, the sounds of those, and the sense of those, of our spirits, declaring who God is, it just, it does something, and I hope that we never lose the novelty of it. Um, which brings me neatly to um, the Psalms, which is a series that we're starting this morning. Um, the Psalms, which obviously contain some of the most incredible poetic language about the greatness of God in the English language or in any language, actually. In fact, in the Hebrew, they're even more incredible because a lot of them have you know, meanings that we miss because we don't speak the Hebrew. Um, and we know this, don't we? I don't think there's a lot of background that I need to give you on the Psalms that you, you know, in, in terms of those things that you don't know. However, uh, seeing as we're starting a, a series on them, I would like to take you on a little step into the um, worldview of the Hebrews as they viewed the Psalms, because it's actually very, very different. These weren't just sort of memory verses and things that they had on fridge magnets to remind them about how wonderful um, you know, God is in bad fonts and pictures of waterfalls. Um, I'm, sure they, I'm sure they retained verses in their singular form like that as well. But to them, they were actually a only known in their collective. So they were a hymn book that um, they sang from and spoke from every time they're together. And the priests in, in the synagogue did it for them, but they also, this was their only way, the everyday man and woman in, the, uh, in those times, in ancient times, um, they would recite them, they would learn them, they would know them. There's only 150 of them, and every time they came together from childhood, they would say these things together. And because their memories worked much better than ours, because they didn't use phones for everything, um, they would learn them and know them, which makes sense of the fact, of course, that Jesus um, spoke in them, referred to them a lot. He knew his listeners understood what he was saying. And of course, Paul did the same thing. Um, 
they were very importantly collected in a time and recorded in a time of exile, um, which explains quite a lot about them. But I suppose if we are to look at our understanding of worship this morning and what we would do, how funny is it to imagine that their understanding of worship um, included quite a lot more than the journey of worship that we go on, um, the, the, you know, the statements about how good he is, the receiving of what he's done for us, the remembering what we've been rescued from. The Psalms obviously include a lot more than those things. They include lament, anger, how disappointed the people felt. Can you imagine reciting together a cursing psalm? A song that had the lyrics about, you know, our political enemies, may their children be fatherless and may you smash out their teeth with a rock, oh God. Which is, of course, funny. But what if we really, really believed the most holy thing that we could do together this morning would be to lay ourselves bare, to do this collectively, to look at the things that we think and feel in the full gamut of our humanness. It, of course, sounds extremely socially awkward to us. Pain and vengeance feature so heavily in the Psalms because many of them were written at a time of excruciating corporate pain. The Promised Land, the kingdom that David had ruled over, David, of course, who wrote many of the Psalms, the temple his son had built had been lost. And this theme in ancient wisdom continues, a theme that David himself spells out quite perfectly. David, the OG shepherd boy underdog, winner of many battles, anointed king over all Israel, called one after God's own heart. And he fell from grace himself quite spectacularly. In case you don't know, while king and commander of the army, fighting all important wars um, to maintain Israel's land after they've been established in Jerusalem, David, the guy in charge, stays home from battle one day, and he gets another man's wife pregnant, and then he tries to trick her husband in, into coming back uh, to sleep with her so that he doesn't have to face the adultery charges. And when the other man refuses to do that, he writes a letter to his guy on the front line and arranges to have this guy killed. Appointed leader of the chosen family of the people of God. This is the story. God calls mankind. Mankind sins and is broken, but God still works through them. God calls Israel, Israel sins and is broken, but God will still use them. God calls David, David sins and breaks, but God still promises to bring the world under this anointed king. The Psalms, this great hymn book, underpinning the faith of the Jews, they are all about this faithful God and these called and broken people. And they show us what it is to be called and broken too. And they, of course, point all along to the promise that someday there will come a time when a Davidic king, so someone in the line of David, will come and change everything. We, of course, live in a different time, 
but the song the psalms sing are tunes we know well. And we know this, if you've been with us, we've just finished this um, kingdom series, trying to give ourselves a broad sweep of the understanding of this actually quite complex moment that we are in, that we stand in this intersection of God's time and ours, now and not yet, his kingdom come and not fully arrived. It is done and it is still being done. The Psalms perfectly express this eschatological tension and they invite us to stand exactly there too and pray these ancient prayers about our own impatience, about being caught here, called and broken, made for heaven but not yet fully seeing it, with total, honest, authentic realness and abandon. So let us look at one of those psalms now. One of the very real ones. Psalm 32. Of David, a mascal. A mascal is like a poetic instruction. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Salah. Um, We don't completely know what Salah means. There's not a lot of agreement, but it's a musical term because a lot of these were sung. And it was probably a moment for a musical interlude and a pause for like to meditate on what what had just been said. So in this instance meditate on this, our brokenness, the sickness of sin and the longing of feeling right with God. So verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance, Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit or bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. There's quite a lot of sin chat going on. Three different words for transgression in the Hebrew here, just in the opening three verses. Pesha, which is um, the, thing in, so the thing inside of us that makes us want to go wrong, to do the wrong thing. Hatar, which is like to go off the path to choose our own way. And awan, which is like a distortion or perversion. And the fact that we're given all three is sort of the sense of the entirety of this idea that we are fully corrupted by sin. Can't get away from it. It's a pretty gross word, isn't it? Sin. I know that it's probably got um, traumatized for some of us. But I don't think even the most deconstructed, even the extremely proud, I don't think many of us would argue that we are free from this 
thing inside us, this propensity to mess it up. The imagery from the creation accounts, as told in Genesis, is often what comes to mind when we talk about these things. These stories also date back to the exile. And in fact, Adam and Eve and the snake, in fact, Noah as well, Noah and the ark, these were all stories that were adapted from the Mesopotamian myths um, of that. So the, Mes the Mesopotamian captors had these stories. And these stories were written in the Hebrew Bible in order to show how the God of Israel was different. So often misunderstood. The God of Israel wasn't an indifferent creator who abandoned his people. He wasn't vengeful. The God of Israel loves his creation. He makes promises to his people. The original selim, which is the Hebrew word, in the Greek it's icon, the word for how mankind is made in God's image, made to rule over the earth in harmony with him. Um, it, it gives us this idea that there is godlikeness coursing through our very beings. And it was there in the original description of it. And in that description, it's given to us in various pictures of relationship. Relationship with self, relationship with other, relationship with garden, and relationship with God. We were made as Selims to be connected in all of these ways right with ourselves, right with other, right with the garden, so the, the land, the animals, the elements, and right with God. But by the end of chapter three, as the story goes, the selling becomes cracked. Our connections to self, other, the garden, and God becomes cracked too. I had the great privilege um, back in London in my former life of working with some early intervention clinical uh, practitioners to help them make visual material to teach their findings on human attachment to a wider audience globally. There were these three old guys, highly respected in their field, they were like three old wizards, who had developed a program for child caregiver interaction, universally applicable, but very profoundly impactful in interrupting cycles of abuse and neglect. It was originally started right here, um, in LA on Skid Row. I learnt a lot about the science of the human condition through them. The most incredible thing about attachment is that the human need to feel safe, it's there, identifiable, verifiable, in us all from birth. As instinctive and important as the need for food and water. And that even these scientists, without professing a faith in God, although one very much did as we got to know each other, that they state as observable fact that our basic human need from, death, from, from, from birth to death is a need to be connected. Shame is the thing that comes to destroy that. I, like a lot of you, I'm very sure, read and listen to a shame researcher and phenomenal communicator Brene Brown. Got some nodding. Yeah, we do. A lot of what I am speaking from here is adapted shamelessly, if you'll excuse the pun, from her research. Shame being the fear of disconnection affects all areas of our lives. Brene defines it as, there she is, the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. It's that hot wash that comes over you 
and stays like a, if you're anything like me, like a little white hot knot in your solar plexus. And it's the gremlin that comes out to play and slaps you in the face to remind you of that thing that you said or did or didn't do or was done to you. And it whispers, you're not okay. You should hide. Do something to cover up or get away. You are unlovable. Uh, we live on a little cul-de-sac off Los Feliz Boulevard. And um, it's a really lovely, quiet little street, but it is not fun to get in or out of in a car, which is something we have to do quite a lot. If you know anything about Los Feliz Boulevard, you will know. The only time you can get in or out of our little street is when a left filter lane at the top of the hill, about 100 yards away, is on, so it blocks oncoming traffic, and you've got a little window to get out, and it happens about every four or five minutes, so if you miss it, it's a bit annoying. This one particular morning last week, I was late for carpool drop. I drive carpool now, guys. It's a thing. Five middle schoolers in the back of my car. It's a real thing. Um, and I was late. They don't like being late. I get really stressed when I'm late. Um, I hate pe keeping people waiting. And um, without thinking, I saw this space. I saw no cars were coming, and I thought, it's my window. I've got to take it. And I sped um, to make it, and I didn't make it. But what I did do was not notice my neighbor and her dog who were behind her car. And I didn't hit either of them before I go any further. But I did really scare her. I actually really scared myself too. She showed me that I'd scared her by doing this face. <laughs> but not only that face, like that face and then a lean. And then like stayed there for me to just look at it in my wing mirror for like ages. And it got me, like it got me all day. Do you know what my shame said? It said, you're not safe. You put people in danger. You are irresponsible and you upset people. And your child saw this. You're supposed to be teaching her how to be a good person. <laughs> and you're 41. My shame loves to remind me how old I am. You're supposed to have worked out how to be on time for basic things now. Not like all the other responsible people who get in their cars at the right time and don't nearly kill small dogs. And you are pathetic for worrying about this all day, all day. To get a bit meta in this moment, because what happens, I've learned this from Brene as well, when I talk about my shame, your shame is activated. So here are some things that are a normal response to your shame being activated. The first one, more shame. You're thinking something like, is that the best you've got? You wouldn't even dream of what my shame's about. It's not the best I've got, it's just the thing that's applicable to share this morning. Because it's the very, very clever thing about shame is that it lies to us about all sorts, but chiefly that we are alone in it, that we're the only ones and that we're worse than everyone else. The second one is a little bit more confrontational. Uh, unfortunately, denying that you have shame even though that you'd like to be sitting there going, this one's not for me, I don't have any of that, is that shame is universal. It affects every single one of us. So this is not just a teaching for the really, really bad people, the really, really messed up people, or the really freakishly fragile people like me and all the other fours in the room, I see you. 
make no mistake that the space between I'm all great and this has got nothing to do with me, <clears throat> this one's for other people, and I'm the worst, is actually very, very small. They're just different ways of labeling the same thing, different coping mechanisms. Just to remind you that the only people who don't feel any shame are sociopaths. So um, it's good that you're not one of those. And then there's the other option, to just accept it. We will always be marred by the cracks in the cellum. Until heaven arrives, this is just our state of being. But shame is not what we were made for. Like David writes about, the third category is those of us who know this already and those of us who want it this morning, that we can taste freedom, we can be washed clean. We can know that actually when we dare to open ourselves to God, to others, that actually we have the greatest chance to receive the greatest love, to be connected. Who know that bringing ourselves into the light, allowing the light to flood the dark places is the only way that we can deal with this universal affliction. I'm going to get back to this in just a minute. Shame is universal. It lurks everywhere in all the drama and all the mundanity of life, in our appearances and our body images, our jobs, status, wealth, aging, flipping heck, hello, our mental health, our parenting, what kind of a friend we are, what kind of a girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever we are, our driving apparently, sex. Shame looms large in the area of sexuality for I think a, a reason that we can probably all guess at. It's the patriarchy and purity culture. And it's a, it's a talk for another time, but sex and sexuality is a space that for, I would hazard a guess that almost all of us is an area doused in shame. And how flipping, ironic is not a strong enough word for a, the fact that most of this has come from Christians. It is not a good idea ever, I have learned, to expect those who are informed by and dwell in their own shame to offer us anything else. But shall we? just to decide to be the ones who break this cycle. To be here for a culture who is heading full throttle somewhere else entirely. Let us be the ones who are brave enough to look at ourselves, our sexual selves, and all of our other types of selves, our social selves, our spiritual selves, in these tunes that the Psalms sing of total honesty with God, knowing that he sees us, all of it. God isn't embarrassed about sex. He made those bits of your body. He knows exactly what you do with them. He wants his cellums to be sexually whole and shame-free every bit as much as he does the other parts of us. You know what's amazing about the picture of shame in the Eden story, just to go back there for a minute? It's, that it's such an incredible depiction, isn't it? Just the idea of like being totally happy to be naked, completely fine to be seen and then suddenly realizing that that's not okay and trying to cover yourself up. I mean, can you imagine a, a better picture of shame? And what God does, 
rather than being the one that shames them. Because I feel like we've often heard this story that way, and God goes, well, your punishment now is that you're going to feel this. That story isn't about that. That story is about this. God clothes them. And the tunics of animal skins is what we know that he does that in. They are symbols that we might not know, but they're symbols that clothing, to clothe in Hebrew um, symbolism means to give life. And, the, and it's a verb that's, that's used usually just for kings and priests. And the fact that it's an animal skin points us ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus, giving his life so that we can be clothed with his righteousness. Shame was never, is never what God wants us to feel. Shall I say that again? Shame is what Jesus came to take away. It's what his brutal death and resurrection has done, has changed for us. The temple curtain has been torn. The earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs broke open in that moment. It is done. The divide between us and God, us and each other, has been restored. It was done. It is done. Now and not yet, because we still feel shame. So what do we do about it? David knew. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. As John puts it, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we look at this in Samuel, um, in the moment that actually David does this confessing, um, after all of this adultery, lies, deceit, actual murder, I mean, imagine coming back from that shame. But you look at the moment that he, he, he does the confessing, it's actually it's quite astonishing in its immediacy. It's a massive speech from Nathan before this about everything that David's done. And then it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Very simple. And I think maybe a lot of us have been mistaught about confession. Confession isn't really about individual sins being forgiven. Not since the cross. It was in David's time, but not for us. It's already done. All of it. Confession is about getting the shameful, black-like tar stuff that sticks to us, the blamey, gross, twisted, whispery, gremlin stuff, into the light. Let him breathe his spirit all over it. Let him tell you how he sees you, child of the Most High God. Sometimes it can be really helpful to confess to somebody else. This is even neurobiologically a thing. It's in the way our brain, what it does when we make words out of things that are stuck there as feelings. If you have something that you feel is too dark and too stuck to share with anyone, just come and tell us. Tell one of us. I mean, honestly, you can't shock us. We've got plenty of our own stuff to be worrying about. Let us tell you again who you are, what has been done for you. These things thrive in the darkness. But that is the thing with light. 
once there's even a tiny bit of it, it's not dark anymore. Confession is not about us, you know, in the great equation of things, making sure that we've said sorry for the individual things that we've done. That's already forgiven. Confession is about us knowing that we're forgiven. David wrote so beautifully about this. The rising of mighty waters will not reach me. They can't get me anymore. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. That's how the psalm ends. Righteousness. We want to make it so hard, don't we? I think of all the wonders of your Americanness, this might be one of the hardest bits of having the condition of Americanness to just deal with. Just taking something for free. You're forgiven. You're in right standing before God right now. This very moment. Not because of anything you've done or haven't done. We all sin and fall short, and he calls us righteous. You can't pay anymore. It has been paid in full. There is no tax or tip or add-on. And the balance sheet was thrown away at the cross. This is what the Spirit does. But one more tiny thing before I end, which I just think it's important to say in this conversation, which is that, of course, in our relationships with the other, these things do work a bit differently. Knowing ourselves to be forgiven and righteous before God doesn't mean we just get to smile and wave at the feelings of other people who, um, who may feel we have wronged them. You know, actually, that the old... The three psychotherapy wizards who I've talked about, they know this as well, and they say that one of the most vital parts of healthy relationship is knowing how to repair. If we don't know how to do that, it's actually quite impossible to maintain healthy connections. It seems like a really obvious point, but you'd be surprised. We have to know how to say sorry, to separate someone else's pain from our own shame. We really, really care about healthy relationships here. With all the angry neighbors and swearing drivers and awful Tinder dates and bosses who don't understand us and treat us unfairly and conspiracy theorist aunties and Insta pictures of your ex's new baby. We have to know that we can come here and at least hope to find loving kindness in each other, in how we treat each other. And we will not do this perfectly, but we will uh, aggressively and relentlessly pursue it. I will take this moment to say sorry if either Ed and I haven't made you feel welcomed and loved yet. We are not perfect either, we will not get this right, but we do really profoundly believe that healthy relationships is something that we're supposed to learn how to do together in church. Let us stand now, please. Tara, if you want to come up, that'd be great. We always get you to stand at the end because it's, it's something to do with the way that we just are off our physical beings and our spiritual beings and our emotional beings relate quite closely, I think, more than we necessarily always understand. I mean, it's partly just to get more oxygen in your blood as we kind of come to engage with this thing. 
And we say, open your hands, not because there's any magic in opening your hands. It's just because it tells, it tells our, our spirits and our beings that we're open. It's like sort of going, yeah, all right, Holy Spirit, I'm up for this. What I'm going to do now is, is reread um, a sort of reworked version of Psalm 32. I'm going to read it over you. <clears throat> and then I'd encourage you, I mean, you can sing if you want, but I'd encourage you to let this song be sung to you. As much as sort of the confession and the dealing with individual things we've gone wrong, I think that actually the acceptance of righteousness is one of the things that God wants us to do this morning. The acceptance of what it is to know calling and brokenness at the same time. To let him, as he always, always wants to do, remind you of how much he loves you. Blessed are you. Your transgressions are forgiven, your sins are covered. Blessed are you. Your sin, the Lord, does not count against you. Your bones won't waste away anymore. We acknowledge our sin. We confess our transgressions. And we know, surely the rising of mighty waters will not reach us. You are our hiding place. You will protect us from trouble and surround us with songs of deliverance. You will instruct and teach us in the way we should go. You will counsel us. Your loving eye is on us. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds you. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. <clears throat>